What can two exhibitions housed in two of the most important military museums that connect us to the history of the Great War, what can they tell us about that landscape of the conflict? What layers can they add to our wider knowledge of the First World War and our understanding of that old front line? Something a bit different in this week's podcast, as I hope you'll see and I hope you'll enjoy. Although we're now a decade past the centenary of the Great War, museums covering the conflicts continue to engage audiences with fresh displays of material and special exhibitions. As we often say on this podcast, the last page of the history of the Great War will probably never be turned and there is in some ways more and more for us to learn. The Great War centenary didn't kind of cap the subject, end it somehow. I remember on the 11th of November 2018 saying just that on social media. In some respects the end of the centenary was a new beginning. How do we continue to make the Great War relevant for new generations beyond that centenary? And museums have a really important part to play in that. Special exhibitions in these museums in particular can be fascinating and engaging and genuinely shed new light on these many layers of the Great War that, again, we often talk about on the old front line. And I think it's a good way to see it, that new material comes to light and it does shed something, it does bring new emphasis to one of these layers and once we kind of put those layers together again using that analogy of a of a kind of jigsaw we're beginning to see the great war in more than one kind of perspective really that it's not just about the military deeds and daring and valor on the battlefields there's so much more to it recently i was out on the Great War battlefields. Now, being in Kent now enables me to get across to those battlefields much easier, including on day trips. And I went over with my friend John and we travelled down to Ypres to visit one such special exhibition at the In Flanders Fields Museum, getting in before that exhibition closed for good, because that's one of the problems with temporary exhibitions is they don't last forever. So we went down to Ypres, went to the Inflanders Fields Museum to see that exhibition. And we're going to talk about that further into the podcast. But then a few weeks later, I was in London and was able to visit one of the new galleries at the Imperial War Museum. I realised that I'd not been there for a few years. In fact, pre-COVID was the last time that I'd popped into the IWM. And last autumn, I'd read about one of their new galleries highlighting the imagery of war and that was something that I really wanted to go and see. So it it made me reflect that many of the themes, many of the layers of the First World War history that these two sites touched on, both the exhibition, the Inflanders Fields Museum and this new gallery at the Imperial War Museum, were good topics of discussion for this podcast and thus this episode exhibiting the Great War, looking at how an exhibition, even a temporary exhibition, 
can genuinely tell us something new. And it gives us a chance to talk about some of the themes that are in both of those sites. So what we're aiming to do here is to look at these two different ways at exhibiting this subject of First World War history, see what each exhibition has to tell us, and tie that into some wider history. And I hope that with new exhibitions coming all the time, and at the Inflanders Fields Museum when we were there, they were just setting up a new exhibition about the American Expeditionary Force in Flanders, which ties nicely into our Doughboys in Flanders episode that we did some months ago. It's good to see that. That's a much smaller exhibition within the main museum itself, highlighting an often forgotten angle of the First World War, the involvement of American troops in Belgium in 1918. So these exhibitions, like we say, are so important. They come and go, and I'm sure that they will provide good material for the podcast as we go forward. So let's begin. Let's make our way, as I did the other week, across to Flanders, to the Flanders Fields Museum in the heart of Ypres, and look at the temporary exhibition that was there. The Inflanders Fields Museum in Ypres, located in the rebuilt Cloth Hall, the original of that building being the centre of the medieval cloth trade, destroyed by bombardments, leaving only a shell of the building by 1918, and then it was rebuilt over a very long period, one half of the structure rebuilt before the Second World War with the main tower, the clock tower in place, and then the second half rebuilt post-World War II, and that element of the reconstruction not being finished until 1962. It's an important building within Ypres itself. It was once kind of the main council chambers of, of the city. And I think there's still an element of that in there, but the Flanders Fields Museum is very much kind of at the heart of that, that building now. And it's got one of the most important collections of Great War material within Europe, gathered over a very, very long time. Some of the nucleus of the collection goes back to some of those early war museums that were in Ypres in the 1920s and ever since their collection has grown as people have come to Ypres with family mementos connecting their family to the town and often they've given them to the museum and the museum has a very very good archive as well of original documents and photographs particularly a lot of aerial photographs and that is one aspect of the modern museum now showing those air photos on kind of big iPads so you can zoom in and out and see particular areas and what they look like now and then compare that with modern air photos. It is a really important museum. And when I kind of look at these two sites that we're going to look at, the Inflanders Fields Museum in Ypres and the Imperial War Museum in London, I realise that these are both museums that have really been part of my life for most of my life. I first visited what is now the Inflanders Fields Museum. In those days it was called the Ypres Salient Museum in 1982 on my school trip that summer when our teachers took us to the museum and it was kind of an old style museum then with lots of cases of material in it, not a lot of interpretation, some reconstructions. I'm always pleased when I go back to the modern museum to see a couple of those original aspects of that museum that I remember from 1982 still being there. 
and one of those is the models, the dioramas of the Eat Battlefield that was made by an unknown model maker, I would guess, sometime in the 60s. Really good reconstructions of the battlefields at Passchendaele and the Menin Gate. And that kind of packed museum, and it was packed with material, had a big impact on me. I suspect for me it was kind of what I thought a war museum like that should look like. And in there as well, there was a, there were maps that you could see the, the salient, and I remember at the far end of the museum was a big board with coloured lights on it with buttons that you could press, and it lit up bits of the battlefield and showed the different phases of the fighting in the first battle of the second Eep, third Eep, and so on. And standing there was a, a short little lady with curly hair, who my teacher immediately moved straight to and started talking to, and that lady was Rose Coombs, who was then the Special Collections Officer at the Imperial War Museum and had written the Bible to the Great War Battlefields, that incredible guidebook before endeavours fade. So again, we're talking about these two institutions in this podcast, and they're on my very first visit. They kind of came together with the arrival of my group, my school group, meeting up with Rose Coombs from the Imperial War Museum. Anyway, I digress slightly there. So that was an old-style museum, and it remained very much like that, an old museum, kind of locked in the past and reflecting a, a kind of different way that museums interpreted the past, not necessarily a bad way or even a better way, just a different way. And then things changed. The 1990s was a period of great change on the First World War battlefields because it was a period in which a lot more people were beginning to take an interest in the subjects. It's kind of led by family history and the availability of, of records. The service records had been released at the National Archives, the medal records. You could go and look up Grandad and your great-uncle and find out more. And that led a lot of people to the battlefields in, in the 90s. And I guess the city of Ypres saw this increase in visitors in a way that it had not seen since before the Second World War, because... After World War II, there's a steep decline in visitors to Ypres, getting to that kind of low point in the 70s and early 80s when very, very few people travelled to Ypres to visit those battlefields and the numbers at the last post at the Menin Gate were very, very low indeed. But by the late 90s, that was changing and that is when I first led a Ledger battlefield tour, for example, in 1997 when... Ledger kind of opened up that battlefield tour market to a wider audience by making those tours a lot cheaper than some of our other rivals at the time. And I think as well, a lot of people began to travel individually to those battlefields in much greater numbers than they had done before. So it was a time of kind of expansion, really, in terms of the infrastructure on those battlefields to cope with those battlefield pilgrims, perhaps more tourists than pilgrims by then in a way that I suppose Ypres coped with them in the interwar period in the 1920s and 30s. And the museum closed and it reopened in a new form with a lot less material, a lot more interpretation. And since then, in the late 90s, it's gone through a number of other changes. About 10 years ago, the current version of the In Flanders Fields Museum opened with more material in it, which was most welcome, Still a lot of interpretation, which is good. A lot of film, a lot of new media. There's some really, really 
I think, great parts of the new museum, or the most recent version of it, where you see these kind of Harry Potter-style video frames where instead of it being a portrait of someone, it's a bit of moving film, and they step into the light and they begin to talk about their experience in the Great War. So it's an actor in original uniform voicing a real soldier who fought on the Western Front. They're not just British, but Belgian, German, French, and other nationalities as well. And there are these kind of airfix-style displays of uniforms and material in the museum as well, which I think is a really good way of showing what soldiers carried into battle. So this museum has, has developed and has changed over time. And one of the things, particularly with the new museum, when they redesigned the space of it, there was a big area at the end where they could have temporary exhibitions. And, and that's what led to that space being used for exhibition after exhibition. And there's been quite a few over the years. There was a really good one about the group photograph of officers of the Royal Berkshire Regiment that was turned into a book, or it might have been a book first that was turned into an exhibition, but that was a really interesting one where they looked at the story behind the officers uh, and the descendants of those officers in that exhibition. Then there was a really, really interesting one that ties very much into the kind of theme of this podcast, looking at landscape and the Great War and, and how that kind of ties into the history of it and involving for the first time, quite a lot of elements about conflict, battlefield, archaeology. So this new temporary exhibition that began last autumn, and I'd not had a chance with Moving House to actually go and see it until now, did not disappoint and was about a subject very close to my heart, the cemeteries of the Great War. So having refreshed our memory of what the new museum is like and not having been in there for a little while, we came out the far end and there is a new temporary exhibition. And these temporary exhibitions are always free, which is great credit to the In Flanders Fields Museum. And there was a kind of entrance area with some displays of material, material recovered in archaeological digs. And then there was the, the big banner for the name of this exhibition, which was Forevermore. And as you walk in, all around you is the memorabilia, the artefacts that connect you to the stories of those silent cities that surround the city of Ypres. It didn't try and cover the whole Western Front. It looked specifically at the old Ypres salient, the battlefields around Ypres during those four years of the Great War. And at the very heart of the exhibition was a big 3D model of one of those cemeteries. And that's what I kind of was drawn to first. I walked over to that and was delighted to see that it, it wasn't Polkapel or Tynecourt or one of the big cemeteries. It was one of the smaller ones. It was Grotebeek Cemetery. Now, this is a very small battlefield cemetery, and the exhibition really kind of explains this in the opening bit of text that you read as you go over to it, and which reads, Out of more than 200 military cemeteries in present-day West Flanders, 10 are Belgium, 4 German, two French, and one is American. All the others are British and are looked after by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. This model at the centre of this room shows Grotebeek British Cemetery in the hamlet of Uderdon near Popperinger. This cemetery is not very well known or particularly big, housing only 111 graves. It is amongst the smallest. Yet there is more to discover than you might think at first sight. 
And this model helps you to read the cemetery to discover symbolism and meaning that is not immediately visible. Now, that particular cemetery sits on a kind of little island with a, a big stream that goes around it, and you cross a bridge to get into it, and the graves are on that kind of rising ground. It, it replicates, really, the kind of moated granges, these moated farms that existed all around that part of uh, Flanders during the Great War. And the cemetery was started by Indian troops who'd served at Ypres in the early phase of the war in 1914-15 because in the neighbouring farm there was an Indian medical corps dressing station. So wounded from the front line on the southern part of the Ypres battlefield were brought there for treatment, including Indian soldiers, and bits of that old dressing station are still in some of the farm buildings. A few years ago I went there with a Sikh group from Reading and we laid on a visit to the farm thanks to two good friends in Flanders who went to speak to the farmer and the site was chosen for Indian burials and the Sikh group that I took there went to visit some of the graves and they said for them it would be a kind of an ideal burial site because the stream came round the cemetery and it was a place where you could scatter the ashes of the dead and they'd be washed away by the flow of a river so it was Already you can see, I mean, this is what this exhibition was kind of trying to explain, really, is the symbolism of cemeteries. These cemeteries looking the same, having the same architectural features, they aren't all the same, and they're not there by accident, and there's often a really fascinating backstory as to how they get there. And the model showed the kind of development of the cemetery. It shows the initial burials by Indian troops, then British troops. There's some concentrations... And there's also a special memorial, a headstone that stands apart from the others, to Private John Lynn, VC DCM of the Lancashire Fusiliers, who died in May 1915 and was awarded those gallantry medals for bravery in the early battles of the Great War. So the model of Grotebeek British Cemetery drew you into the heart of the exhibition. And then around you were lots of other areas that kind of discussed different themes of this history of cemeteries at Ypres during the First World War. On one wall, for example, there were displays of the old and new Imperial War Graves and Commonwealth War Graves Commission cemetery signs. The older, original ones were cast iron, painted green with raised lettering that was painted white with the logo of the Imperial War Graves Commission in a kind of curved section at the top of the sign. And these were placed at strategic points to enable the visitors to find a particular cemetery. Again, when I first came to Weep in 1982, there were still some of these signs in place in one or two locations. Lone Tree Cemetery at Spanbrook Molen was a good example of that. And although it was three decades since the commission had begun to change over from the old signs to the new, there were still a few that were still there. Now, they've all been gathered off the battlefields. There are some underneath the Lille Gate, although it is believed they're copies because there's an obvious value to these older signs and they didn't want people prizing the original ones off the wall. But to get an idea of what they look like outside of this exhibition, you can see those replicas underneath the Lille Gate. There are still a few places, not in Belgium, but in France, where I know there are original signs still in situ, 
But it's one of those kind of things that I don't like to discuss, again, going back to the value of these things, because I have seen cemetery signs pop up for sale on well-known internet auction sites. And the one that was on display in this exhibition actually wasn't an EEP one, it was one from the Somme, from one of the experimental cemeteries from Forceville Cemetery down on the Somme battlefields. The new one, which is the modern version, the ones we're used to seeing as we travel around the battlefields today, that was for the Rampart Cemetery at Ypres, with the name of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission at the top and then the name of the cemetery and a kind of shape to the sign showing the direction that you have to travel to get to that particular burial ground. That section of the exhibition also had architectural plans displayed around these cemetery signs showing the layout of cemeteries and the design of the memorials and how the planting within those cemeteries would go. And these are kind of ephemeral, really, to the wider story, perhaps, but they're really interesting documents. And they're also incredibly beautiful documents, well-prepared and well-drawn, that are kind of almost works of art and all part. I'm using that word quite a lot lately, of the culture, really, of the history of the cemeteries and the culture of the old front line more generally. And then as we went into the kind of wider exhibition, there were, and I was pleased to see this because I find these fascinating, there were a lot of guidebooks and maps from that interwar pilgrimage tourism period. And there were loads of these guidebooks published from Michelin guides through to the Pilgrim's Guide to the Eep Salient, the Battle Book of Eep that was published by the Eep League, and many others besides. And some of those came with maps tucked in a little folder at the back you could pull out and use them to navigate your way around the battlefields and then there were separate battlefield maps that were sold now we had a, a recent talk for podcast supporters about eep and old postcards and i put up quite a few postcards in the main square in the interwar period and all around the ruins of the cloth hall there were these little stalls where you could buy picture postcards and souvenirs and guidebooks and these maps and there's lots of different versions of them. And I'm very often in exhibitions like this, I see maps that I haven't seen before. And that was certainly true here. There was a new map showing the cemeteries from the Belgian coast down to the French border in this part of Flanders, showing all of the British and Commonwealth cemeteries, but the Belgian cemeteries, some of the French cemeteries. And what was really interesting, showing the German cemeteries as well. Because today we know the principal German cemeteries, Langemark being the most famous, Vladslo to the north is another one that people go to because of the Katie Kollowitz statues there, there's Hugelader and Menin Wood Cemetery, the largest German war cemetery in the world from either world war with 48,000 burials. But if we go back to that interwar period, that is before the concentration of German cemeteries by the Volksbund. So what we see on these earlier maps is the placement of what were many original German cemeteries at different points on the battlefield. And it's quite surprising to see just how many there were. So these are important documents, really, in their own right, not just kind of ephemeral artefacts that showed a traveller how to get to a particular place. They mark locations of memory that are now no longer there. So they are part of the archive really in that way then there were two walls either side of the exhibition space with grave markers with crosses and headstones used by the different nationalities and, and that was fascinating now the original wooden 
crosses that were placed on British graves, something we're perhaps more familiar with, but this had German examples, French examples, Belgian examples. And nations like France and Belgium, very often they had ceramic images of soldiers that were placed on graves. There were ceramic plaques produced and they were placed on graves or headstones. And what was interesting for me to look at the, the British crosses that were on display in there, I was kind of looking at some and I thought there's there's a familiarity to these crosses. I've seen them before. And a kind of a, a little spark somewhere in the back of, of the mind drew me back to my old stamping ground of Sussex. And I realised that both these crosses were once on the wall of a cemetery in Uckfield. And making sure that I kind of wasn't losing the plot, I went back onto uh, the internet to uh, a website called The Returned, which looks at the crosses that were returned to Britain after the First World War and indeed confirmed. And there were some pictures that I'd taken of these crosses in the 1980s on that website showing these two battlefield crosses. And one of them is quite an ornate one to a soldier in the Scots Guards who is buried near to Arras. So it was quite nice to see those kind of pop out out of my past and there they were in this exhibition. But what that part of the display showed was the huge diversity in the ways that different nations marked their burials. And you see this in contemporary pictures of German cemeteries during the First World War, the immediate post-war postcards we have of uh, British and Empire, Commonwealth cemeteries, places like Lissenhurk, where there's hundreds and hundreds of different designs of crosses. And certainly from a British and Commonwealth perspective, you can see, but just by looking at these, the potential issues if you just left the commemoration of the dead, if that had just been left to the families, you'd have had a big diversity in burial markers within cemeteries, huge monuments to families with money and poor old Mrs Brown from the back streets of Manchester, she wouldn't even be able to afford a wooden cross. So this, I think, certainly from the kind of longevity of the commemoration of the dead, the British decision to keep them buried in theatre of war and also for the government to pay for the replacement of the original markers with headstones, really did achieve that kind of uniformity in death. And other nations did the same, and there was examples of that in the exhibition of the standard graves that were put up on Belgian cemeteries and French cemeteries. And within German cemeteries, of course, that changed in those half-century from the end of the Great War to the end of the Second Great War, with individual commemoration within German cemeteries being marked by wooden crosses mainly, or some original headstones, and then with the concentration of German dead, that was removed, some plaques were laid, or grey stone crosses or wrought black crosses were placed with multiple names on, making people believe that the Germans buried more than one soldier in a grave, which of course they didn't, but it was this money-saving measure that the Volksbund, the German War Graves Commission, put in in the 1950s, post-World War Two, And of course, the other aspect of German commemoration from, from that period was the mass grave, the Kameradengraben, which we've discussed, places like Langemark, but every German cemetery, Vladslow, Hugeleder, Menin, they've all got them. Thousands and thousands of dead buried in caskets in these osseries, these mass graves within the cemetery. So what you see with this, I mean, you look at these grave markers, that, again, they're not just objects, they are tactile kind of connections to the history of this subject and they show that the way the dead are commemorated has been a period of change really reflects a period of change from wartime 
views of it through to the post-war views through to later generations and coming back and thinking how are we going to continue to remember these men and I guess that's kind of a not a warning for the future but a nod to the future as well and returning to the kind of German commemoration of the dead it was really interesting in this exhibition not just to see things from the Imperial War Graves Commission but to look at documentation and photographs of the Belgian cemeteries, of the French cemeteries, but also the German side of the burial of the dead. They had quite a lot of examples of the Volksbund magazine that was published in the 1930s and then into the 40s, showing a new regime in Germany visiting those cemeteries, and that, of course, was the National Socialists, the Nazi regime, the Third Reich, and Hitler himself, after the fall of Western Europe in 1940, came to visit German sites and his own battlefield sites from the Great War, and he came to Langemark, and Langemark, for the Nazis, was kind of part of their story. This whole idea that the battle at Langemark, the, the death of the students in 1914, for Hitler showed a typical example of the way that the German nation had been betrayed by the state in the First World War by sending the cream of Aryan Germany off to a pointless and futile death on the battlefield. It was all part of the extension of that stab-in-the-back kind of idea. And it shows how politics and modern events often weave through this story of the dead. In some respects, there's a phrase, unquiet dead, and you kind of feel sometimes that there is an element of that because the modern day somehow intervenes with the story of the past and the dead, the long dead of the past, somehow get dragged into it. And that's not just true of Flanders, but of elsewhere. I was just this morning looking through some cemetery registers for Iraq for the Mesopotamian campaign and then looked up on Google Maps to see where these cemeteries are now and very few of them are properly marked at all now because of the problems in Iraq over the last two or so decades, then those cemeteries have been all but abandoned by necessity, sadly. And that's modern events weaving through the story of the past there. Perhaps something that we'll return to in a future podcast. And then kind of working my way through the artefacts and, and the photographs on display you're drawn to another three-dimensional aspect of this exhibition, which was a 3D map of the cemeteries around Ypres. Now, this was interesting. It kind of mapped Ypres with the Belgian coast to the north, Ypres in the kind of centre of the battlefield and all the little villages and places around the city. And each cemetery was marked by a column, and the height of that column dictated the number of burials. So smaller cemeteries were, you know, kind of a few millimetres high, and then others were much taller and there were different colours for different nationalities. Blue for Commonwealth cemeteries, for example, red for Germans. And this very visual way of displaying the kind of totality of the dead in these different cemeteries was a really interesting approach. You know, I really like these kind of visual ways of displaying data like this. If you just list cemetery names and numbers, perhaps it doesn't have the same impact, but with this model, you could see just how big some of these cemeteries were and you can immediately kind of pick out the top five British and Commonwealth ones in terms of size and you could see how the, the scale of the dead in the German cemeteries completely overshadowed the size of British and Commonwealth ones. Menin for example being almost four times as big 
in terms of burials as tying cot. So this is a really interesting model, and it's one of those ones are kind of a bit like the model of the cemetery in the centre of this exhibition that I hope won't be kind of destroyed. I hope they might be put away and perhaps repurposed because this was a, a really good way for people who don't understand just how many cemeteries there are just at Ypres and the size of some of them and how they kind of equate to each other in terms of those size. And when you see the small ones, they're generally battlefield cemeteries, comrade cemeteries placed on the spot where the fighting was, and then the bigger ones are post-war concentration cemeteries. This is a great kind of tool, really, for people coming in to understand this and, and to understand, really, the scale of the First World War. And I think that's one of the things that cemeteries do give you. When you talk of some of the numbers involving casualties and men who were on battlefields, sometimes very difficult to imagine, but then you go to somewhere like this and you see just how big some of these cemeteries are, I think it does give you an insight into that. So really, for me, impactful part of this exhibition to see the size of these cemeteries displayed in this way. And as part of that section of the exhibition, there was a interesting kind of info panel. And they were quite light on the amount of text they put in the exhibition, which I think is good. In this kind of world where people don't have a massive attention span, then huge amounts of text I don't think work. But the text they did put in there was really kind of spot on in terms of how it drew you into what that particular element of the exhibition was about. And this particular section of text really interested me, and I'm going to read it for you now. While after the war, tens of thousands of French, Belgian, German and American war dead were exhumed and returned home, the British Empire was unique in deciding not to repatriate the dead. The British also kept the smaller cemeteries they had established during the war. As a rule, once there were 40 graves, a permanent cemetery could be created. The other nations tended to go for larger, collective burial grounds. During the 1950s, the Volksbund Deutsche Kriegersgrab of Azoga moved the remains of more than 130,000 German soldiers from multiple sites to just four surviving cemeteries. The largest, Meninwald, is now home to almost 48,000 fallen soldiers. That is four times as many as the largest British military cemetery, Tyne Cot. And this is the line that particularly kind of struck home to me, going back to what we've said earlier in this podcast. The commemorative landscape is therefore changing all the while. What is constant is the strength of the emotions the First World War continues to evoke. And I think that's it, really, is that this is not a static subject, the history of the dead, the commemoration of the dead, the cemeteries and the memorials to the missing. It's still very much an active one. As I was reading that in the exhibition, the Menin Gate is being renovated in time for the centenary in 2027. There are cemeteries out in the salient that are being repaired. There are the remains of soldiers found by battlefield archaeologists like Simon Verdigam, who are waiting or just are about to be reburied. There's work by diligent researchers uncovering the real names behind some of the unknown soldiers buried in the cemeteries, and their headstones are being changed from an unknown soldier of the Blankshire Regiment to a real man, the man who was missing for so many years but has now been found. And again, it goes back to what I kind of said at the beginning and, and what I've said so many times in this podcast, is that this subject never stay still. The pages keep turning, the history keeps evolving and that I think is kind of what is fascinating about this 
and what for me is fascinating to go to an exhibition like this because it kind of provokes all kinds of thoughts. You go in there and you, you look at how someone else has interpreted what you've been studying for, for many, many years and you hear their point of view. And I think it's good to be open to this. None of us know everything. We will never know everything. And, and to me, that is always the beauty of this. And to read other people's interpretation and how they feel about these places, to me, is... It's kind of inspiring because it makes you think about these things in a different way. And that, for me, is, is kind of the joy of special exhibitions like this. A wider main museum like the Inflanders Fields Museum remains static, really. It does, in terms of what is in it. It brings in new aspects of it now and again. But these exhibitions, really, are so important. And it's great that the museum does this. So I don't know what the next one in this exhibition space will be. But do, on one of your next visits to the battlefields, try and get to the Inflanders Fields Museum if you've not seen it before and check out what the latest exhibition is there. It's so important to continue to support these places. We don't want these museums to fade away. They're such an important part of how we visit the old front line and they're vital in our understanding of it, really. So that was a temporary exhibition, actually on the battlefields itself, and now we're going to come back to dear old Blighty, to the heart of London, at Lambeth, to the Imperial War Museum. Our second museum visit takes us away from the Great War battlefields to London and one of Britain's great museum institutions, the Imperial War Museum. Established during the First World War in 1917, I think it was, its task was to collect artefacts to ensure that the story of that conflict would not be forgotten. And that was then extended on into the experience of the Second World War. I first visited the Imperial War Museum sometime in the early 1970s. My interest in military history and the history of the Great War predated my first visit to Ypres in 1982. It kind of always been there. And I was lucky that I had a very patient father. My dad, a Second World War veteran, didn't seem to mind to take his son to war museums. I'm sure that it must have evoked all kinds of emotions within himself, really, when he went to places like this and he saw the weaponry and the photographs connected to his war in Italy in 1944-45 but I'm ever grateful to him really to have had that opportunity to visit museums like this at such a young age and they had such an impression on me that lasts to this day. It always feels very special to visit the Imperial War Museum. It's changed a lot over the years but it was a museum that helped foster my interest. In the 70s they had a, a major exhibition called War which covered conflict from the First World War right up to Vietnam at that time, and I think a little bit about the Cold War as well. And there were reconstructed trenches from the First World War and all kinds of exhibits in there. And it followed a, a modern approach then, kind of giving interpretation, but it was still very much kind of artefact-heavy, which for me was really interesting because I'd started to collect militaria then, and I saw the Imperial War Museum displays as a way of going to look at actual kit to kind of visualise it. So when I saw it in junk markets and antique fairs and 
all kinds of shops that existed across the south of England where you could find Great War artefacts. And I knew what it was, and I knew where to look for the dates and the flaps of webbing and how that opened and so on. You could see that just by kind of going into the museum. So for me, it was a kind of living museum, really, in the way that I could interact with it. I'm sure, in fact, I know I wasn't the only one who kind of viewed it in that way. And then once I began to get interested seriously in the First World War after that first visit, I joined the Western Front Association. And I remember in one of the early editions of Stand 2, there was an article about how you could research the Great War and what archives there were out there to do it. And that led me to what was then the Public Records Office, now the National Archives, and also led me to the archives of the Imperial War Museum. They had a document collection, they had a library, and they had a photographic collection as well. And the photographic collection was the place that I next met Rose Coombs, who I bumped into as a schoolboy on that very first visit in 1982. And there she was, of course, being Special Collections Officer at Imperial War Museum. Incredibly helpful individual, kind and patient with a young person with a lot of questions. And she introduced me to her partner in crime, who was the head of the photographic department then, a chap called Mike Willis. And he had this encyclopedic knowledge of the photographs of the Great War. You could kind of say to him, I'm looking for a photograph of men in the Surrey Regiment in a trench at Messines. I mean, that's a fictional example, but he'd go, yes, I know exactly, it's this one. And he'd pull one of these great big volumes of images. They had them stored in these big albums with large-scale prints that were probably done at the period on every page. And he'd pull one of those off and he'd open it up and show you. And he was also the first one that very kindly introduced me to aerial photographs of the Great War. At that stage, they only had a very small proportion that had been printed, but they had all of the glass negatives stored in wooden boxes. And the only way to access them was with a trench map reference. So you had to kind of look up a trench map, put a reference down, submit that, and they would find what they thought was the most relevant photograph for you. Now... As far as I'm aware, they've all been digitised now, so it's a kind of an easier system. But that was the kind of old way of doing things. And Mike Willis, Rose Coombs, and other staff members there at that time were kind of full of stories. As soon as you got photographs out, and they'd say, have you seen this image of this? And they'd show you this. I mean, it just was a fantastic kind of institution to me, going there, passionate about the Great War. It was fantastic just to go there, look at a few photographs, and, and talk to them. And the reading room, which was up in the dome, the tower of the museum, you were led in by a security guard and you went up the kind of little stairs to the final bit to the reading room itself and there were the tables laid out, there were books all around the edge of the reading room and when you rang up to make an appointment you said, I'm researching the 18th Eastern Division on the Somme and they would find a few relevant books, the divisional history, perhaps some battalion histories and various other things, and lay them out for you. And then you could go through the catalogue and you could order more. And I found all kinds of goodies in the bookcases there, and they had some cupboards beneath those bookcases, which you were quite free to open up and have a look inside. And there were some really rare books in there that I'd never come across, and some I've barely ever seen since. And you could just get those out and go and sit at your desk and and read those. And I bumped into all kinds of other people who were researching the Great War at that time. John Nichols, who wrote Cheerful Sacrifice, he reminded me the other day that that was where we first met. So it was a kind of homing beacon, really, for passionate Great War, fascinated by the Great War individuals 
to come and research it. And it was a great institution to work with. And while the museum has come and gone in its approach to doing things, going there the other day, walking into the main atrium, it is very different than when I first went there and very different to even when I went there 20 years ago. There's a lack of certain objects like the First World War tank there and various other things. But it's still a fantastic museum. It is the kind of beating heart of military history in Britain, in my view, and an institution that, you know, I think is really important to support and nurture. There's all kind of dissenting voices about these things that there always is. And my view as always is to try and work with institutions to try and move things forward. So it's good as well to see the Imperial War Museum changing and evolving as well. And this comes with kind of talks and small exhibitions that they do there and special events. And when I was there the other day, it was during half term and they had a lot of museum staff members doing hands-on history with some of the younger visitors. And, and that's great. I mean, that did not happen in the 70s. You kind of weren't allowed to touch things like that. There was a kind of a view that it was totally forbidden for all sorts of reasons that I completely understand. But now that I think people see the education value, the educative value of letting children touch objects. I mean, I've seen that in my own work with student groups. They love to kind of put on webbing and hold a helmet and look at a gas mask and see original postcards and letters and medals and so on. And it's great. And the museum were certainly doing that the other day. But what led me to the museum on that visit was this new gallery. And this new gallery is the Blavatnik Art, Film and Photography Gallery. So what is Blavatnik? The exhibition explains this. The Blavatnik Art, Film and Photographic Galleries have received generous support from the Blavatnik Family Foundation. The Blavatnik Family Foundation is an active supporter of world-renowned educational, scientific, cultural and charitable institutions and is headed by Sir Leonard Blavatnik, the global industrialist and philanthropist. So they help make this exhibition possible. And the exhibition kind of replaces the art galleries that were at the Imperial War Museum previously. They have a massive art collection, not all of it on display. It's not possible for any museum to put their entire collection on display. And this is a kind of new interpretation of it, but not just with art, but film and photography as well. So it's about visual imagery and something that greatly, greatly interests me. So going up to the third floor where it was, as you walk in, what is it you see straight away? I mean, what drew my eye were the Great War aspects of it. I mean, I looked at some of the others, Eric Revilius, an artist, war artist of the Second World War. His material is on display in there. But I kind of went in with an eye, nodded towards the Great War for this particular visit. So as you walk in, what you immediately see is that famous photograph of Chateau Woods at Ypres in 1917 with a soldier crouching behind a stunted tree, smashed, a landscape smashed by artillery fire, and there's this little lane heading off into the distance, into infinity, into another smashed landscape, and there is this kind of typical dark imagery of what that dark landscape around Ypres at the First World War was like in 1917. So a classic First World War photograph. There was also John Nash's Over the Top, showing the first artist rifles going 
over the bags in the snow at Marquardt Combray on the 30th of December 1917. And that's a painting that we discussed at length in a previous podcast episode about the art of war. And we're going to talk a lot about art in this part of the episode. So if you've not heard that one, perhaps it's worth going back to have a listen. You also see alongside, because it's an exhibition that shows film as well, is a screen with a kind of continuous loop of part of They Shall Not Grow Old, which was the Peter Jackson film where he colourised the official film, largely of the Battle of the Somme. And that was something I went to see at cinema in Sheffield and a few other places actually during the Great War centenary had a massive impact on me. I've seen all that film before, obviously black and white, but the way it was restored and the way it was colourised was really quite incredible. There's that moment where it cuts from the black and white sequence to the colour, the screen kind of widens and these men are coming through a trench and they voice overed what these men were saying. They got people to kind of lip read them to see what they were actually saying and then somebody voiced that and when you looked at it, you kind of suddenly felt you were in some kind of real event that was actually taking place. This was modern film. This wasn't film from a century ago. This was modern film with modern people in it coming towards you through this trench. Incredible bit of film. And it was good to see that as part of this exhibition as well. And I think these kind of three mediums that they're focusing on in this exhibition are really, really important for our understanding of the Great War, of all conflict, Imagery, which we see in books all the time and on television, documentaries, YouTube, film, of course, the same. But art is such an important layer in our understanding. I can't kind of stress that enough. And it's something I'm not an art historian. I'm not an art critic or anything like that. And I think there's quite a lot of kind of baggage that goes with that sometimes that puts people off of art. But it's a simple thing, really, in that art belongs to us all. It's a way of interpretation And artists often kind of take a very simple idea uh, and they express that on a canvas. And we see that a lot with war art of the the First World War. And then coming round, you come to another part where an entire wall is devoted just to one painting. And that is another John Nash painting. It's kind of very heavily Nash-ified, this exhibition, with John Nash and Paul Nash as well. But this was Oppie Wood. And this is a massive, massive painting of soldiers in a trench at Oppie Wood in 1917. It's a painting that I've seen in the Imperial War Museum before, but I'd last seen at the Towner Gallery in Eastbourne when they did a special John Nash exhibition a couple of years ago. And I went to go and see that with some of the kind of preliminary sketches that he'd done for it as well that showed some deep, different detail to what is in the final painting. Again... It's a massive painting and you kind of stand back from it and you look at it and it's the scale of it. Again, uh, you know, understanding the scale of the First World War with the cemeteries, as we mentioned, with the exhibition at the Flanders Film Museum, the artwork, I think, also is, is part of that scale. And when you look into this painting and you see this kind of typical Great War battlefield with shattered trees and a, a moonscape of shell holes, many of them full of water, and then tiny little human figures on that landscape, almost an alien landscape looking out into that wilderness. It's so, so impactful. And 
I could stand there for kind of hours, really, looking at some of these pictures. And it's great that the War Museum allows you to walk right up to them and see them. In, in other galleries that I've been to, that is not allowed. And although they prohibit some paintings from you walking right up to some paintings, understandably, most of them you can, and they're behind glass, they're protected anyway. And the other good thing that I really liked about this is they actively encourage you to take photographs. They're trying to tap into the Instagram and the social media generation. And there are a lot of young people doing that, kind of taking photographs and uploading them onto their social media streams, which is good to see. And that's to be welcomed as well, because again, some galleries are quite kind of difficult about that because they don't want people taking pictures of the artwork that they've got in their galleries for understandable reasons but I think it's all kind of part of how in what is a people's war the first world war and even more so the second world war perhaps it's so important for the people now to be kind of part of that anyway I should get off that soapbox but John Nash's Oppie Wood just a, a, an amazing painting and almost worth going to the exhibition just for that and then just around the corner you've got Paul Nash the Men in Road, 1919. Now, when I first went to the Somme, I had one paperback book, apart from Rose Coombs' guidebook, I had one paperback book with me, which was Robert Graves' Goodbye to All That. And Paul Nash's painting of The Men in Road was the cover. And I remember very often having read the book, I'd read a section of it, and then I'd look at the cover, and I'd get engrossed in the cover, because the detail that is on this, again, it's this kind of classic great war landscape of shell holes of stunted trees of smashed obliterated places and only a tiny tiny little flicker of humanity as soldiers marching down a road going up to the front concrete bunkers it's kind of all part of that again that alien landscape that the western front became turned into that alien landscape by the industrialised war that the First World War became, of these millions of shells obliterating nature, obliterating humanity, obliterating just about everything that was there. And the artists were drawn to this, understandably, because it had created a new world that they tried to capture in their artwork. And this one by Paul Nash, I think, perfectly captures. And it's another really big painting that is amazing just to stand in front of and, and contemplate. But at the kind of very heart of this exhibition is an even bigger painting, and a painting that, again, I remember from one of my very earliest visits to the Imperial War Museum. It was in a, in a kind of alcove somewhere in the museum and filled that alcove, and that's John Singer Sargent's Gast. I mean, this is a huge, huge canvas, and what it depicts is a line of gassed wounded tommies gassed and blinded by that gas men sitting in the foreground also blinded by the gas but the line of soldiers each one has got his arm against the other and they're kind of being led forward as the blind towards and you can see it on the right hand side of the painting the guy ropes of a tent for treatment to have their eyes washed and cleaned and hopefully their sight might return gas in the first world war particularly mustard gas could blind soldiers temporarily in some cases permanently and it's an incredible painting because it shows the misery of this these men blinded by the gas being led along helpless almost pathetic figures 
as they walk towards their treatment and the men in the foreground awaiting the same kind of fate and awaiting the same treatment. There's all that, there's the misery of it. And then in the background, there's a tented area that's obviously a, a camp. This was sketched behind the lines and then he drew up the, the painting that we see now. He, he turned that into a full-scale work of art based on his original sketches made in the field behind the lines in, I think, 1918. And then in the background, there is this camp. And then when you look further between the figures of, of the blind being led towards the tent, the soldiers playing football. They're having a laugh. They're kicking a footy around. And, and it's a, a kind of release from the war. So there's this strange contradiction. There is the misery of the battlefield, the, the tragic nature of casualties, the reality of the front line, and then behind it, men having a bit of fun away from that front line. And even in the sky, it's captured a kind of summer moon very, very carefully and clearly, I think. And then when you look at the sky, there's aircraft and little puffs of dark smoke where the anti-aircraft fire is exploding around these aircraft. And there's the war again. And it's kind of this ever-present sense that the war is never far away. Even though this is behind the lines and this was a relatively safe place to be, aircraft are in the sky, the front is not far away, these men, perhaps playing and resting, soon will be returning to that front and perhaps they too await the fate of the men who are being led in that pathetic column, having been gassed and blinded by that gas up on the battlefield. It's just an amazing painting. And again, you can kind of stand back and you can look at it. And you could look at it for hours. And there's a book that they've published in conjunction with this because the painting has just been recently restored. And I'm going to put photographs of the EPE exhibition and of this onto the podcast website and a link to, in this case of this painting, some of the material the Imperial War Museum have put together about how this has been renovated. So you can have a look at that. So... That was kind of certainly one of the highlights for me to see the restored painting, this massive piece of artwork with so much detail in it, almost kind of every little square centimetre of it could almost be a separate story of the Great War. I think, again, it's, it's the power of, of artwork. It captures something that photographs and film never could. I mean, there are photographs of blinded soldiers, blinded by gas being led along a road, but the painting kind of adds a different dimension to it, really. And that is the power, for me, that is the power of artwork, to capture things of which there is no other record. Based on truths, based on the observation of the artist, the artwork can give us an insight into something that otherwise would remain in the mind's eye of those who were there and be lost forever. And I could go on with this exhibition. I mean, there is so much in there. Pure War Museum is free, easy to get to if you just go there to see this exhibition then just go there to do that because there is so much for you to see and it's not just artwork there are huge amounts of photographs there there's the battle of the somme film there's a selection of images by some of the key photographers that operated on the battlefields of the great war ernest brooks baby brooks he captured some of the classic images particularly of the battle of the somme and it's good to see those kind of explained in the context of the wider exhibition. And there's private photographs in there as well. It was interesting to see the private photo album of Elsie Knocker, who was a, a volunteer nurse who served with the Belgian army up on the northern Flanders front in the village of Pervis. 
and it was nice to see that because it kind of illustrated an often forgotten aspect of of that part of the Flanders story but my old veteran pal Malcolm Vivian who I've mentioned a lot on this podcast over the years he was up at Pervis and got to meet Elsie Knocker and would go and have tea with her and she wrote a book about her experiences after the war called A Cellar House of Pervis and he had a first edition of that with a big long inscription from her remembering those times that they'd taken tea together at Pervis in 1917. But on one wall almost as I left I noticed a long panoramic photograph of the First World War and these were taken by Royal Engineer survey units with a special kind of camera, similar kind of camera that we used to take group photographs at schools and universities before the war. These were then implemented to take panoramic, long panoramic photographs showing sections of the front so they could be used for mapping purposes and intelligence purposes to identify what was going on in the German lines. And they were taken of front line positions but of course you could see beyond that into the distance on a clear day and see villages and locations behind the German front line. And this one covered an area north of Beaumont Hamel down towards Chiapval, for example. And I was looking at kind of the front line near Hawthorne Ridge. And then in the backgrounds, there was Corselet and the Ancre Heights where the Canadians had fought. And all those many places that I know so well today. And I think for me, it brought together the real purpose of exhibitions like this, at least for me, is tapping into these layers of Great War history connecting to them, understanding them, and seeing their relevance, really, for our wider understanding of when we visit those battlefields and walk those lanes and pathways, those crisscross pathways of the Great War. All of this, I think, enhances what we know and how we understand that old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Frontline with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash